it's it's like the theatrical slash creative um version of you know standing on the street corner and waving your arms yeah sure like i think about those little kids um who are doing fundraisers for their schools and stand on the street corner with a sign that says car wash Mm. i feel like that a lot of the time it's like no pick me pick me do my stuff do my stuff and 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 i have come to a place in my career where it's just kind of like i've written these kind of plays for so long and i feel like i just need to like go big or go home so glad to have you. I'm so glad to be here. You have to know that I've wanted to interview you for forever. I'm so glad that we could finally make this work. Uh, I'm I have so admi- glad too. That's very kind. Thank you. I've admired your work for a long time and are we've had some touch points. What is the most challenging aspect of having a life as a writer? Can we start there? Okay, sure. Um, is that a singular? The most challenging aspect? Singular? Um, I think the thing that I find the most challenging is, um, is I think I get in my own way sometimes. And that, that takes different forms. I mean, sometimes it's procrastination, but then I will also make a case for procrastination being a necessary part of writing. Um, but it can also be like, it can get out of control. Um, and I can be my own worst enemy and not get things done. I also, um, suffer from, uh, imposter syndrome (laughs) like this is me am I really the best person for this job are you sure that I should be writing this um I have my confidence is a roller coaster it goes it has extreme highs at really strange times and and also incredibly extreme lows and uh I um I feel like the writing though it needs to happen it needs to happen I feel compelled to write and um and uh, I think sometimes I just get in the way of that. I like both am necessary to the process and also I can be the greatest detriment, mm. yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is a very interesting juxtaposition. But And Elizabeth Hansen was an adjunct professor in playwriting. She's also a fabulous um, actor and director. She, uh, I would, I applied for graduate programs in English and did not get into any of them and didn't know what to do where I should go and I felt like I was supposed to do more school um and Liz told me and I had just taken Liz's playwriting class for kicks and giggles um and uh and so I applied for BYU's because I was there here here there um applied for their graduate program in the the master's program in theater history and criticism and so I did not get into the English program I got into the theater program and who knows? And so I was like the not a very theater person, theater person mm-hmm. at the time that I met you. So I think I was there in fall of 99. And there was uh, one of those very general 
how to be a grad student classes that yes. we all took together That's from Bob. So I think I started January of 1999 and was still trying to find, but by summer, no, that's not true because by summer, I may have been 98, by summer, I had gone on the TYA tour to Norway. So you're right. And by fall, I was probably in it. So yeah, that's when we met. Yeah. Well, that's what I remember, but also I don't know that my memory can be trusted. Um, I've done a couple things with Jordan at Creekside and also now at Leona. Um, oh, cool. and. And I knew the long brother that I knew first was Josh. And Josh is one of the co-directors on Relative Space. So Josh is the director of the high school theater program at Hillcrest and has done some like amazing, wonderful things there. And he had a student teacher who did my Joan of Arc play there, Martyr's Crossing. Um, And Jordan saw that show and asked, and then contacted me about doing it at Leahona. And that started this, uh, I started doing a lot of things with Leona. And then Jordan started Creekside and Pride and Prejudice happened at Creekside last summer. Before Hale. Before Hale. And I did Bitter Lemon at Creekside. That was a commission for Creekside. It's a companion piece to the Scottish play. And now that's happening. It was written for a very specific idea that Jordan had. And then, um, which is that the actors got the script and they performed it in hand. They did not know what the story was. And so they were finding out what the story was alongside the audience. And we had two different actors do it every night. And um, and so now that play is getting done with rehearsal at Plan B this time next year. So, yeah, I've had some really nice history with um, with Jordan and Creekside and Leahona. So, which is not, I don't know where we don't need to. You know, I, we, I, get, we got derailed again. I'm, I'm <laughs> thinking in real time, I, there is this common thread in these conversations about serendipity, mm-hmm. uh, the importance of a support group and how we're so interconnected. It, it just, it can't be overlooked. Like that's right. how we work. Um, yeah. Your, that story is a great example of it. Uh, Let's talk about Relative Space and Atypical Musical. Uh, As we get talking about it, two things. Van Dean, a Grammy and Tony winning producer, president of Broadway Records, said of the show, this show is deeply relatable, filled with fantastic music, and has a long and exciting life ahead of it. Congratulations on that, Mel. Good for you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm very excited. Potential abounds. The the content advisory... I think pulls me in for someone who doesn't know anything about the piece and that content advisory is that this production is a fictional account that engages the audience in a discussion of depression, anxiety, and suicide by discussing these topics. We hope it says, we hope our show can help us all start a conversation and shine a light into the darkness. I feel so the way that the show came about, um, is uh it is it is to to say it i mean i'm going to try to be succinct this is me trying to be succinct so simply put the story is about a mother and a daughter who are both um who respect respect respectfully oh gosh words who are respectively a mother and a daughter who are respectively suffering from depression and anxiety and and the way I think about them in the world of the play is that they are they are each traveling in their own little bubbles in their own little world through the world of the play and not necessarily communicating with each other about the issues 
that haunt them. And, um, and so the play is about, it's about releasing some of the stigmas around mental illness um, through communication and through communication with people that you love and people that you care about. And I, um, I think it's a really important topic and I feel like it is very relatable. And I think sometimes people don't necessarily want to say that it's relatable, but I'm hoping that they will find it. So, um, I was approached, um, by Jeremy Long, who's the producer and also a songwriter. He has a daughter, Kirsty Long, who is this incredibly talented 16 year old singer songwriter, um, an incredible performer. She has such a voice in her tiny, her tiny frame that it could support this voice is just kind of wild to me. She's an incredibly talented person who um, has been writing songs basically all of her life. And she just recently um, signed with the Warner Music Group as a performing artist. And, uh, and she has this library of songs that, um, that she has written some of them. Her father has written some of them. Some of them they've written together. A couple, she's gotten permission to do a couple of really fun covers. And, uh, and in conversation as, as they've been like talking to musicians and, um, and getting, and Van Dean has been part of that conversation, you know, getting her career on the track to be a professional performer. Um, they had all these great songs that weren't necessarily radio friendly. Um, and so, uh, I think Van was involved in this conversation and said, you know, Hey, this could be a song cycle. It could be a show. And so, um, so Jeremy approached me, we have, um, several mutual acquaintances. I've worked with a couple of his brothers. Um, one of whom Josh is one of the co-directors on the show. And, uh, and he approached me about writing a book for these songs to create a musical. And, um, and so there are a couple of ways in which it is an atypical musical so much so that we're billing it as an atypical musical. Mm. We, um, wanted from the get-go for it to be as strong a play as possible. Um, and uh, I feel sometimes, this is me, I'm going to get on my little playwright soapbox here, that some I love musicals. I love them. I love going to the West End. I love going to Broadway when I can afford it. It's, you know, I think a really great musical is the epitome of what Aristotle said drama should be. You know, because it's got all of these, it's spectacle and music and character and story. I feel sometimes in the contemporary musical world, the book is kind of left behind a little bit. And I understand that, you know, the music is really great and you want to have these big flashy um, stage spectacles and that's really wonderful. And I love being swept away in that. But I, w I just sometimes wish that this book was, that people would spend more time with the character development in the dialogue as they do with the music. Because I just think it makes the show stronger. And so I, what I've tried to do with this is write what is basically a family drama. And on top of the family drama, we have a rock concert happening. Um, so Kirsty is actually performing in the show. She's not acting, but she is singing um, in this very originally named character, the singer. I did a really good job with that. Uh, and so while this mother and daughter are kind of traveling through this story. Um, the singer is there and the actors don't sing. The actors don't sing, but the oh, singer cool. kind of is performing these songs 
that fit into the spaces in between what is being felt and expressed on stage. Wow. Not like a Greek chorus. Not like... Not like a Greek chorus. Yeah. She's not narrating. Yeah. Just... So... So the, the, I think the easiest way to explain it, and this is one of those things we've been working on um, here 10 minutes later after I've said, yeah, this is the show that I'm working on, um, is that I feel like the, one of the big themes of the show is communication and miscommunication hmm. and, um, and what we choose to share and what we choose to keep to ourselves. And there are a lot of secrets. Um, there's one particularly catchy song called White Lie. And, and and we usually we find ourselves you know telling white lies to the people we love either to spare them pain or to spare ourselves you know seeing their disappointment and uh that's that's something that happens in the show and um i feel like the music kind of expresses what cannot be expressed or is being um what the characters are choosing not to express so the music kind of is almost a character but not a chorus ooh okay interesting Interesting. It's all, it's like a, hmm. I had to think of a, a model that I would, would be familiar and I can't think of one. I was thinking Bamako, puppetry so actually. Like yeah. But that's yeah. not it at all. Um, it almost to me is like uh deaf theater, right? Like it's. Oh yeah. Right. Like a, a voice. A little bit almost like a translation. It's like another yeah. voice. Yeah. Like it's two voices, just a different form almost. Interesting. Right. I can't wait to see it. So, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's the rock concerts happening. The play is happening. They're kind of happening simultaneously. They inform each other. And so it's, there are a couple of ways in which it's not a typical musical. I mean, we don't have an intermission, so, hey, that's not typical. Um, But yeah, it's, I was just really excited about this, this situation about a mother and a daughter, which felt really real and relatable to me. It's very small. Try to make it very honest. And then there just happens to be this really incredible music happening around it. You're not a stranger to inventive work. Which is to your credit, because you also come to the work, as I've observed it, with this incredible pedagogy of writing. And although you say you're not a 30-year person, or we weren't when we first met, very much so now. So you bring all of these things to the work. Um, how do you approach each piece uniquely? I feel like, and this is going to seem really simplistic, but I think it's probably the best place to start. I feel like story is the thing. And you do what you have to do to tell the story the best way you can. And in this case, it's the music. It's this incredible, it's this incredible teenage singer. Um, and that's like necessary to the story. I mean, the play works without it because that's what we wanted, but it also, it's like, it's better. It's better with the music. It's better with there. There's some, I think, really interesting um, choreography done by Josh and, and the co-choreographer, Sophie Greenwood. Like, I feel like there is something the story dictates how it wants to be told and you kind of go with that. I think um, there are, there are different stories that are meant to be told in different ways. And, and I feel like this is, you know, I've been trying to find a way into, into how do you write a musical? It's such a big undertaking and there's so many people that are involved. There's so many moving parts and I, you know, grad school is a thing where 
you kind of learn how to write a play a very certain way. It's almost formulaic in a way, but it's like, you know, if you want someone, which is, it's perfectly viable advice to say, you know, you want someone to look at this play and produce this play. It should be a small, small cast unit set, all of these things that make it, you know, I have like, I don't know, like six of those plays and they don't get produced. They don't get, they don't get done anywhere. I don't think they're bad. (laughs) I like to think that they're fine. But um, but also I'm not the only I'm not the only playwright. There have there have since I became a playwright, the number of playwrights in the world, at least in this country, has grown exponentially. You have to find ways to stand out because everybody else has in their arsenal those six to eight plays that you know could be done in a garage and be very effective. And that's an awesome kind of theater, but it's also a very specific kind of theater. It's a very specific kind of storytelling, and so it's like. I feel like there, there's that adage, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Sometimes you have to try to be a little more inventive. It's it's like the theatrical slash creative um, version of, you know, standing on the street corner and waving your arms. Yeah, sure. Like I think about those little kids um, who are doing fundraisers for their schools and stand on the street corner with a sign that says car wash. Mm. I feel like that a lot of the time. It's like, no, pick me. <laughs> Pick me, do my stuff, do my stuff. And 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 I have come to a place in my career where it's just kind of like, I've written these kind of plays for so long and I feel like I just need to like go big or go home. Because mm. for so long people have been, you know, it's like, well, you shouldn't try to write for Broadway because, you know, what, who, the chances are so small of getting there. And, um, and I've told myself that for a really long time. And I actually still believe that. And here I am working on this musical that, you know, hey, we're hoping it's going to go to New York. And we do. I'm not going to say I don't want it to go to New York. But also, Broadway is, is this ideal that's up here. And why aren't we being more idealistic with the work? I, it's like, I had never thought five years ago about how much high schools are looking for plays. And they want plays that are big and complicated and have lots of roles and have lots of um, weird plots and have lots of tech. And they want the hard stuff. They want to do the hard stuff. High school students want to be, they want to be adults on stage. They want to feel like they're doing real drama. And, um, and it's like, I have all of this like little tiny tight stuff and I need to like switch the gears in my head to be like okay we just can write big stuff I can write big stuff and that's okay and I mean the irony of it is the musical that I just that I have going on right now is it's a cast of six plus an ensemble of movers but I mean and as far as musicals go that's not a huge that's not a huge cast but it's like I it's an adjustment I think that I have to make where it's like you have to just find the story that wants to be a play and you have to let the story tell you the best way to tell it. And, um, and I have to like, let myself be okay with that. I think it's, um, and then that's when things get more inventive and more innovative, innovative, if I'm feeling British, but it's like the, you have to like open yourself up to, to, to be, if you want to get produced outside of the garage, you have to like take yourself out of the garage. And there's nothing wrong with being in the garage, but also it's kind of like you have to be on that street corner waving your arms. But then also, what if you're on that street corner 
I'm mixing my metaphors. My metaphors are so mixed up right now. It's like all the metaphors. But um, it's like if you're on that street corner doing a show, are people more likely to stop than just you're on a street corner saying, hey, let's do a show? I don't know if that even makes sense. It's actually so fascinating to me. I, I, um, I'm in this unique place in my world, my, this career, where I'm looking for shows to take to Broadway very specifically. And also a part of, as investor, co-producer, Broadway shows that are happening. And so I'm looking for the right show. And so everything that you're talking about, and I also recognize that many of these Broadway shows are hoping or banking on the fact that there will be high schools down the road in these secondary markets that will be doing the shows and have mm-hmm. a long tail. So it is this ecosystem. And I do believe as professionals, we find ourselves in various points in this dial of where we are in relationship to each other, but it all feeds each other. It's all very important. So yes, we are both on the street corner saying, this is the one, and we're in the garage making the work, and we're at the desk or on the podcast mic um, curating and cultivating the right voices, not right voices, but all the voices um, to help the ecosystem. And then at the same time, it is lightning in a bottle. Like the more I do this producing, the more I'm like, yes, any, it's like ratatouille. Anyone can cook. Anyone can write a play. That's not true. I can't, but there are many people who can write a play, (laughs) but it is so much more to getting it produced. There's so much more to getting it produced. And you know that this podcast is dead. It's focused on emerging producers and first time investors, both of which I think it's critical to this ecosystem because you need investors and producers on every stage, on every step. You know, we talked about Jordan Long, the Long Brothers. And one of my questions to you is what involvements have you had with investors? But I also use that word liberally. I mean, for the commercial theater, investors have a specific role. But if you're working in educational theater or uh, theater that is supported by a community, that investor word changes. But the relationship between the role of um, a writer in all of that umbrella and investors are very connected. What what involved when I when I ask that? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Your involvement. What involvement have you had with investors? Well, when I think about investors, I think I don't think I've had a lot of involvement, and I don't know if that's something in the ecosystem that needs to change or needs to. Or maybe it's fine and I just, I need to adjust and get to the place where I'm like, hi, investors, let's meet over here. But, um, cause I, I think also think about when you use, when you use the word liberally, I think because there's so much there. Okay. Two thoughts. The first is that sometimes people will say, well, if you want your work done, you have to do it yourself. And there is currently a really strong uptick in interest in self-producing. Um, and I have done that. I have done a lot of self-producing. I haven't done it as much lately because it's expensive. You know, it's a thing where it's like, and then there was a, oh, a little pandemic thing. But um, but it's very, and you also have to be self-producing in very certain places for people to realize, oh, you're self-producing. And oh, um, it's like, oh, she's done several of these and this is really interesting. So that's that's one thing. Um, the other is that, you know, to get in touch with producers, I mean, the usual way that things go for playwrights 
Um, and I mean, and, and I know it's different for musicals because musicals are a different form. Um, but it's like for a playwright writing a straight play there, you do a lot of submitting and you do a lot of workshopping and you work with dramaturgs and you work with, and you meet people, you meet artistic directors and you submit and you submit and you submit and you submit and you hope that someone somewhere picks you up and produces your play. And I think the thing that I think is interesting about the word investor, and when you use the word investor and talk about it with a liberal definition, the thing that came into my brain right away was agents. Because I feel like that there, there are gatekeepers in the theater community where it's like, you know, I think I dream big and sometimes it's Broadway and sometimes it's like, no, this play would be great at a regional theater. It would be great at the Guthrie. It would be great at the Goodman. I would love to see this happen at the Mark Taper Forum. You know, I can think about these theaters where I would love to see my stuff happen, but those theaters are, you can't even submit to them without an agent. And, and most agents don't accept cold submissions. They only accept, they only consider people based on recommendation. Like if you go to any agency website, there's no email address. Hey, submit your stuff now. Um, and so it's really hard to get an agent, but an agent seems to be a necessary step. So for me, I haven't had a lot of direct correlation with investors, um, because that's been, my interaction has usually been on the artistic side of the production. So I've worked with a lot of directors I work with dramaturgs. I sometimes interact with producers. Um, I would like to be more involved and to be more part of that conversation. But I have not really, that's not where my experience has been. It's interesting. I am working with some writers now on a project that we are taking to New York. And one Yay. of the roles I feel is important to me as a producer is to involve the writers in this whole experience. Like what, th these are the steps that are happening. And this is the perspective from the producer, because I feel like the more we're all on the same page, the better. You've had two feature films, Mel. Jane and Emma and Freetown um, mm -hmm. must have involved a lot of investors. What do you wish investors, it's, I have to keep thinking about this idea of agents because that's really interesting. Um, investors in the term define as someone who would invest like financial capital and then film. Um, I know that that is a real thing too. Um, what, if any invest, uh, what would you want investors to know about your role as a writer? Let's go there. Well, I think what I've noticed about film and film is again, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different, their, their rules are different mm. and the situation is different. I mean, I think, and we talked once a couple of weeks ago, very briefly about the strike that's happening right now Correct. and the situation there and how things are different. Like as a playwright, I have, I own my intellectual property and as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter, I typically don't, which is why there are so many, issues with the guild and with the strike that's happening right now with fair pay and the way that writers are getting paid for their creative work in film. I feel like both of the films that I have done that have been made, and I have written several screenplays on my own. Um, the two that have been made, the two features that have been made were both jobs for hire where I was approached with a story idea and said, can you make this into a, into a screenplay? And I did. And I feel like, they both of those projects are on the small side uh, they're both independent neither of them were guild signatory pictures so i'm not a member of the guild 
Um, and I don't think a lot of people involved in the projects were other than some of, I think a couple of the leads in Jane and Emma are SAG actors. We didn't have, um, you know, so they're very small, low budget movies. I did meet um, some of the executive producers who were also investors. Yes. And I was aware of some of those conversations, but I was not a part of them. And I feel like, I feel like the way that writers are, the way that we work in Hollywood, and I think the, the strike that's happening right now is kind of indicative of this. Writers need to be producers in film. I think you need to do that to protect yourself and to protect your work and to have a say and to be part of that conversation. Um, to be a writer and to be an associate producer. I was an associate producer on Jane and Emma, and I feel like it's it's the interesting thing also about television is that the there is a really interesting hierarchy with the with the way that writers in the on staff are also depending on their experience and who they are in the room the hierarchy on the show are also producers and executive producers mm -hmm. even like an executive producer in television is different than an executive producer in film and so i feel like i would like to moving forward be more involved and be more of a producer in things i think in in theater i feel a little bit more because i own the script and it's mine giving it to you as a producer i feel a lot more trust and i'm open to like letting someone else do that i'm more wary about that in film just because there are so many stories of how things change on set when the writer isn't there i would like to be on set i would like to be involved i would like to be a voice i'd like the collaboration it to be a collaboration with the director with the actors with everybody mm. and it's not collaboration is not a oh i'm the writer i'm going to come on set and tell you y'all are doing it all wrong that's not i mean because that's not collaboration and I think sometimes people are worried about that. Like there are certain playwrights who will come into rehearsal and just make everybody feel small. And that's not, I just love to be in rehearsal. It's like my play is getting done. My play is getting produced. I just want to be in the room and see it happen. Um, and I feel that way about film sets too. There's something, there's something magical in like being in the production part of things. But I do feel like that I don't think I've had that experience and I would like to have that experience more of that experience to be a producer, to be involved, to not let the investors be such a separate faraway entity to be like, Hey, I'm a major player in this project. We need to be aware of each other because mm. that's going to make the work better. I hope. Mel, that really informs the work I'm doing right now. And I hope for those who are listening it informs that work as well the importance of communication. I'm sure that having you in the rehearsal room in some incarnation makes you a better writer. You're a fabulous writer, but that informs your process as you know, as you're creating oh, totally. a script. Yeah. Which betters all of our work and the field. Um, you mentioned young people and high school students who want to be adults. I couldn't help but think about your play, the post office, which one, an award from the American Alliance for theater and education. Mm -hmm. How is that different as you're creating? Do you create that specifically for specifically created for young people? Do you want to talk about the, the post office? So the post office is um, the post office is an adaptation. It's also, I, th I like to think of it as a, as a translation, but that mm. feels really pretentious. So it's probably more of an adaptation. 
Um, it's an adaptation of um, a short play by the same title, The Post Office, by a um, Bengali playwright, Rabindranath Tagore, who is some will refer to as the Bengali Shakespeare. He was a great Indian um, poet and writer. Um, and he, the post office uh, is one of the things that he is most well known for. And I was approached in the early part of 2019, which feels like it was, you know, isn't that when we were in grad school? Uh, that's when we were, that's when we were in grad school. That's the answer. Yeah. That's when we were in grad school. Um, I've been working, I work regularly with a theater company in Salt Lake City called Plan B Theater, mm. whose mission is to do um, new work by local writers. And uh, and they also do a lot of really great educational work. They almost, I think every year for the past 10, eight to 10 years. Oh dear, I'm going to get that wrong. They've done several, basically every fall they do an elementary school tour of an original play written by a local writer. And they also do readings. They do, um, when they have plays that are appropriate for high school audiences, they have, uh, they have study guides and things like that. And, and I was asked by plan B together with, okay, this is a list of things. I was asked by plan B together with the Gandhi Alliance for Peace, Granite School District, the United Nations Association of Utah. I had to get those words in the right order, as well as Plan B Theater. And I was asked, um, there was, the United Nations was having the United Nations, United Nations Association. There was going to be a United Nations conference in Salt Lake City in August of 2019. And I was approached in the spring and asked to write a short play that would be performed by high school students and potentially by refugee high school students in Utah high schools um, that was in support of opening our doors to refugees. And I was asked, I was given the text, because it's in the public domain, the text for Tagore's um, The Post Office and asked to do uh, an adaptation of it with the intent of it being performed by these um, high school students. And then it was opened up to auditions for um, high school students across several um, school districts or, or is it just all the high schools in the Granite school district? I think it was just in Granite school district. And there was uh, Adam Wilkins who teaches at Cottonwood high directed the play. And, um, and so I took to Gore's the post office and kind of reimagined it in um so the post office is a really beautiful kind of a fable about a young boy who's dying of a mysterious illness and he's been adopted by this elderly couple and he uh, is, he has everything wrong in his life and yet he tries to be positive and this parade of people go by his window and he changes them all for the better because he basically is not wired to be negative. He's just a positive ray of of sunshine and um and it's a very positive play it's very beautiful it's also an incredibly poignant statement against british imperialism in south asia and um and the difficulty was looking at it it's like it's a cast of basically 11 bengali men and a little girl and so there were a lot of ways in which it had to be adapted um and so i had to move it out of India, um, and uh, and I basically didn't want it to be associated with any particular country or any particular mm -hmm. government or form of government. So I kind of put it in a post-apocalyptic fictional kingdom that's kind of um, at the tail end of a war 
and the and I took this little boy, um, and I I took basically all of the roles and made them gender neutral, hmm. so that just about every role in the show. I think Ash, Amal became Ash, so Ash and the stranger, um, and our female are non-binary or female identifying, and everybody else could be any gender. And uh, and I just kind of I took Tagore's story and I put it in what I hope is a really approachable form for contemporary high school students. And it was the idea of them being, because it's a fable and it's kind of got this magical, almost surreal quality to it that, uh, that they wouldn't mind, you know, being age appropriate as opposed to like, they usually do like to play adults, like want to be adults on stage. Mm. Um, I've noticed that students, like, they like to be older than themselves. Yep, they always like, want to be Junior high older. kids want to be high school kids. High school kids want to be older. And so, but I think because of the kind of this magical fairy tale quality of this particular show, it doesn't really matter as much. But, um, yeah, I wanted to, um, to really make it, uh, it's actually, I, I think, a very spiritual show without being religious. Um, and I, I, uh, I feel like, um, I just wanted to tell this, to, to deal with this idea of positivity because I'm a cynical person and I struggle with that. I, I look at the original post office and go, oh, this kid, how, how can he be this positive, so positive about his situation? And I had to, in adapting the play, go through in my mind and look at it from this character's perspective and figure it out. And mm-hmm. I had to justify it dramaturgically and be like, this is why she is the way that she is. This is why she changes all of these people. And it became a very positive, affirming experience. And that's what the play has become, too. Let's talk about race. Your intro that I read for, actually, this was for... Um relative space, an atypical musical, starts off. Melissa Leilani Larson is a mixed-race Filipino writer based in Salt Lake City. Hi. I am a mixed-race Filipino writer. How long? Uh, my mom is from the Philippines, and my dad is from um, St. George, Southern Utah, and Las Vegas. How long Where did you it say? take you to get comfortable with that, with saying mixed-race Filipino writer? Um, oh, oh, that's a great question. And, uh, and everything's going to come back to us in 1999. <laughs> um, I have been a mixed race person all of my life. And yet, which sounds like a stupid thing to say. That sounds like a stupid, but of course, duh. I mean, what else, what else have I been? I have been grappling with how to be a Filipino writer probably all of my life. I feel that the constant battle is am I Filipino enough? Is it okay for me to write plays that have Filipino characters? Is it okay for me to write about being mixed race? Is it okay for me to write about race at all? Um, And for me to put that in my bio, I feel, and I have a play that was done um, a couple years ago that that's what it's about. It's about a failed filmmaker (laughs) who's mixed race Filipino. And uh, gee, wow. Gee, that's not autobiographical, is it? I don't know. Um, but there's a scene in which she 
is having an argument with her um, her girlfriend, and her girlfriend basically accuses her. She says, you've only started to put that in your bio. It's performative. You know, what's the big deal? And I think a lot of those questions that I've put in that play are questions I've asked myself a lot. And I find myself, you know, kind of dealing with. And I haven't, I have in my career, like, come back to it, like, touched on it, and then been like, I don't know if it's going to work, and kind of shrunk away from it. Um, way, 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 way back, if we go all the way back to when I took, still an English major, and took playwriting two from an adjunct professor at BYU. And so playwriting one is write a one-act play um, and learn the basics. And, and playwriting two is a little more advanced and you write a two-act play. You write my first ever full-length play that will probably never see the light of day is a play about, is a, is a contemporary family drama about, um, about a woman who, a Filipino woman who is separated from her husband and her um her grand her mother who is um a very interesting has very interesting ideas about the end of days um and there's uh so her her mother who's a an elderly filipino woman and then also her daughter who's a mixed race daughter and there's a lot of family issues and there's a hurricane so none of them can leave the house so like literally there's no power in the house and um it's not a very good play. I know because it's like the first full length play. No, it's the second full length play I ever wrote, but that's a story. That's a story. But it's, um, it was the first one I wrote with intent as a playwright. And, uh, and it was like that story hit me. I was like, this, these are the things that I know. This is what I'm writing about. I'm writing about my grandmother, who is a very staunch LDS, formerly very staunch Catholic um, matriarch of this large Filipino family. I'm writing about my mother who came to the States as a young woman and, um, and became, you know, integrated into, um, into American society, into white society. I'm talking about myself as a mixed race child who looks mixed race, my sister who looks white. You know, these are the things that were in my head when I was starting to write plays, but then I didn't know what to do with them. I wrote a play about a Filipino mail-order bride when I was in grad school. I wrote um, about, it's something that I've just come back to, but always the question is, am I the right person to tell the story? Why do I feel like I'm not Filipino enough? I'm not Asian enough. So that's something I've just always struggled with. And it's like, and I've also struggled with people, you know, I just want my writing to be my writing and I want people to just say, hey, this is great. Oh, hey, you wrote that. But I feel like part of being a writer is people put you in this box and say, these are the things you write. This is what you do. And so I don't talk to people about, because it's none of their business. I don't talk to people about my sexuality. I don't talk to people about where my family is from. I don't, it's like, because people always, there's this assumption and then people are disappointed. Like if I tell you this play is autobiographical, um, there's something about that that people think is interesting but then they will ask me is this play autobiographical and I'll say no and then they're disappointed <laughs> you know and so it's like you, you write things and the goal is to write something that is so real and so there and so in the moment that maybe that's why people want it to be real they want it to be true Yes. they want it to be 
um, they want me to say, oh yeah, this actually is my life. This is my life on stage. But I also feel like that's something, there are unfair expectations. And I don't know, like part of me is like, there are other Filipino writers in the world. There are Filipino writers who can speak Tagalog. I can't speak Tagalog. And, and yet I want them to accept me as doing the same thing that they're doing. Um, is that disrespectful? I don't know. There's a lot of questions. And so it's come, I've come to this place where it's like, I get a lot of, um, I've had to work to own it. And I've only let myself own it in the last couple of years. I think with Mestiza or Mixed, which is the play I wrote about being mixed race, that's kind of where that started. And it's like, this is who I am. This is part of who I am. I need to be better about letting myself write about this. And so, yeah, um, Ooh, that's like a answer. Well, it's a great answer. The Mestiza is Tagalog for mixed. So Mestiza or Mixed. Yeah. I read the Salt Lake Tribune article and could sense the consternation and you've just articulated it so well of uh, it's both why do we lean into the vulnerability of an autobiographical piece like that's so interesting this is someone's life it's so out there for everyone to see and explore but there's a human connectionness cathartic sense of that could be my life or what would my life be up on stage and that draws in an audience but it also is um, putting one's life up on show, which feels also hard to handle. So the wrestle is real and mm -hmm. I want to uh, acknowledge that, but also like give you props for stepping into the discomfort of the conversation, which is, can I write about this? Can I not? You're not the first writer that I've talked to that's asked that question of, am I allowed to write this? There's somebody better who could speak more authentically to this, but your voice is your voice and alone has power and beauty and should be allowed to be heard in every form. How about that? Thank you. <laughs> I like that. That's good. That's good. Let's... I do feel like it's one of those things that I've like learned to, it's been good. It's been good to own it. I love hearing your, your wrestle while your wrestle now with being in this stage of your career of, standing on the street corner and finding the way to say in a unique way, this story needs to be told. How do I need to tell it? And how do I find the resources to do it? That comes back to the producers who are listening, who are like, I can help you find those resources because this is a story that's important and needs to be told, which is exciting. I, my biggest wish is that someone listening to this will say, I absolutely want to work with Mel and this is the story I want to work on. And we'll drop you a line on your wonderful website and <laughs> reach out to you and, and say, let's make this happen. Um, let's talk about puzzles. Not be opposed. Yeah, let's oh, do puzzles. That. Oh, puzzles. Top so, shelf. Oh, top shelf. Marie Kondo would say the best thing should be reserved for the top shelf. So how is puzzles <laughs> um, cathartic or therapeutic? I love puzzles. I don't know. I always have. I remember very specifically, I have a memory. I think I was in the fourth or the fifth grade. And my dad went on a business trip or... It's such a weird, uh, a trip associated with his work. That's more words. Oh gosh. Anyways, he went away for like a week and he came back and, and I don't remember where he went. And we were at the time we were living in, I was born and grew up in Hawaii and he brought me back a puzzle. It was like a 300 piece puzzle. And, um, and I don't think it had anything to do with the trip that we, he was on or where he was. 
I'm guessing he was somewhere on the mainland. And, um, but he brought me back a puzzle because I think he thought I would like it. And I sat down and did that thing and I just did it. And I would do it. I found different ways to do it. Like I would do the border first and do the inside. And then I would do like the inside and then do the border left. And then if I was feeling like really brave and crazy, like I would do some of it upside down and then that, you know, didn't work out like to just do the brown cardboard side. I just love to do them. And it was very, um, my brain just really enjoys finding the right place for things to go. And, and I feel like when I get stuck and I'm working on a story and I'm trying to figure out where things are supposed to go, doing a puzzle is very soothing. It's very, um, it's the right kind of distracting. It also is just enough thinking, or maybe it's a lack of, it doesn't require so much thinking that I can't be thinking about the story at the same time. So I work through the problems in the story while I'm working on a puzzle. And, and also then if, even if I'm not working on anything, it's just, it's just a very, um, it's a very easy de-stressor for me to sit and work on a puzzle and listen to a podcast, listen to an audiobook, watch a movie that I have seen too many times. It doesn't really work with the movie you haven't seen because you know, you want to watch the movie. And also it doesn't work when you want to watch something that's got subtitles because then you just kind of stop and you're reading the screen. But um, I, I am a creature of habit. There are certain films and shows that I go back and watch again and I always learn something new from them. And yet I have seen them enough that, you know, I don't need to be watching, watching the entire yeah. time. And those are the, the kind of things that are ideal to do while puzzling. So it's like, it's usually my, if they, everything is too crazy, I need to just do something with my hands and breathe normally, a puzzle will let me do that. Who knew that a puzzle would be a tool for playwriting? Who knew? What are your three movies? Top three movies. Top three. Oh, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. It changes. It changes. Today, I would say my top three movies are um, Sense and Sensibility, the 1995, um, The Farewell, and um, I don't know. See, there are like eight movies saying, pick me. Pick me to be the third one. Um, lately, I have really... I don't know. All of them. Um, what did I rewatch recently and I really was happy about it? A League of Their Own. Oh, sure, sure. Um, I have like, there's, I have a lot of movies that I go back to a lot. Um, and that there are, there are things that they've been very influential and formative for me as a writer. I feel like the Emma Thompson screenplay for Sense and Sensibility is a perfect, it's a perfect adaptation. It's a perfect, it's, it's Jane Austen, but it's also its own thing. It's also Emma Thompson. It's also Ang Lee. It's all of these things. It's just a beautiful movie. If you are a Jane Austen fan, it's like, it is a perfect adaptation. But then also as a movie cinematically, it's excellent. And I think about The Farewell. I've been thinking about The Farewell a lot. I think about Lulu Wang and how I want to tell stories and how I figure out my, how I have been figuring out my Asian-ness and where I belong on that spectrum of of Asian storytellers and filmmakers. And I think about that story about how it's about tradition 
Um, but it's also about someone who's very like me in trying to fit in her family and make those things like, you know, trying to make sense of what she wants to do as an artist, as a filmmaker with her parents who are very traditional. But then also there's this whole, the situation with her grandmother is so interesting. Um, and I really, really was moved by that movie a lot. Interesting, Mel. Uh, your Pride and Prejudice adaptation, which I saw, was to me a good example of reflecting back what I've heard, just heard you say. <clears throat> it was taking a show and putting it in a contemporary space. Like it felt, yeah, yeah, very conversational. And there were modern references that were so refreshing. So congrats, which, you know, sold out 56 performances. Amazing. And is now headed to its own, to a second run. Yes. Yes. It's going, it has, um, it's scheduled to happen. I think I've got three or four that are lined up and it's getting published by stage partners. So, uh, I think one of the difficulties and when I, I, I said earlier that, you know, there are just a lot of playwrights in the world. And I don't know that I want there to be less playwrights. I mean, there are days when I want there to be less playwrights. <laughs> but I'm glad that there are a lot of people who consider this their thing to do. Um, but also, it's, it is hard to be on that street corner when a lot of other people are on a street corner. And sometimes the street corner, they're on the same street corner and it gets yeah. crowded. Right. And I feel like sometimes it's you know it's as simple as i just wish someone would give me a break i just wish someone would call and pride and prejudice is happening at the texas shakespeare festival in july they're in rehearsal right now i'm very excited about it i have no connection to texas at all i got an email from megan who's the artistic director director megan simpson and she said hey can i read your um your pride and prejudice we're thinking about doing a pride and prejudice on our season and i sent it to her and she emailed me back and said, this is great. And we would love to do it. And I, it's like one of those magical things that playwrights imagine, I imagine happening. It just doesn't happen terribly often. And I feel like, I mean, if I have to lean on Jane Austen a little bit to get, um, to get a little higher up, to get a little more visibility on that street corner, I, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say no, yeah. but the play has, it did sit for a while, like, it was, there was like five years when that play did not move. And I wouldn't say that it's changed hugely. I wouldn't say that I've rewritten it. There's been a little bit of tightening here and there, house cleaning. Yeah. But it's just kind of all of a sudden in the last couple of years um, caught people's attention. And that's really exciting. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I can't quite explain it. It doesn't make sense to me. But I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> and also as part of the, sadly, the process and the ecosystem, right? Yeah, let's not say no. Right. You get the last word. Shout out to the many, many projects. Now we can go to your website, Melissa Leilani Larson, which we will link in the show notes, melissaleilanilarson.com. <laughs> and it just, I mean, you do such a good job keeping this updated um, in the theater now, in the press. I mean, keeps going online, recent happenings. I, uh, it's such a beautiful job. So what would you like to, well, thank uh, you. people to know? Uh, what are your, your final shout outs uh, for today? Oh gosh. Okay. Well, yeah. So Pride and Prejudice is, um, I'm just about to send off the, my, I don't know what to call it. I, um, I haven't been published a super lot. The post office is available from youth plays. 
youthplays.com. Um, that was my first theater publishing, I don't know, licensing, all of that stuff. It's very exciting. And um, I've done so much of that myself through my website. And so to have access to that has been really great. I'm about to send off the my proof draft of Pride and Prejudice to stage partners. Um, and uh, I, um, I'm working on... Um, Let's see. So I'm working on the musical. We're in rehearsal right now. We're moving on. We're, we move on stage this week and are getting ready for tech. Wow. Um, Relative space runs at the Creekside Theater Festival. Creekside Theater opens this weekend. Um, they are renovating the space in Cedar Hills. So they're going to be indoors this summer with intent to being back in the park next year. Um, so Creekside opens this weekend with First Daughter's Suite by... John Michael Lacusa, and um, and then a stage adaptation of Tinkerbell, and then we will open. Relative Space will open a little later on in the season. June twenty second is the VIP red carpet opening night. I'm not nervous about that at all. Um, six performances: Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I believe we close. Yeah, June twenty second through July first. And so tickets and info are at relativespacemusical.com. And um, let's see what else. Uh, Bitter Lemon is happening on the season of um, Plan B Theater in Salt Lake City is doing a season of um, revamping, revisiting uh, classic works. Um, So Bitter Lemon is my, it's kind of an imagining of a conversation between uh, Lady Macduff and Macbeth. And um, so that's happening uh, and they uh, Plan B is really great. They're doing some really interesting pieces. Um, Balthazar by uh, Deborah 3D and um, a radio spin on um, Sherlock Holmes by Matthew Ivan Bennett. Um, those are the other two items on the season. So they have really great package deals on their website, planet, planbtheater.org. I'm in the lab of um, playwrights whose work gets done there. Oh gosh, shout outs. What am I doing? I know. Oh. Uh, you just finished Gin Mummy uh, at the Harrington Center for the Arts. Uh, there's uh, Gin Mummy is what you were saying earlier about contemporary space. So Gin Mummy, I feel, is is a comedy. It's an Oscar Wilde. It's a spin on the Oscar Wilde, but it's um, a little more gay than Oscar ever was on stage. Can I say that? Is that a, that's a weird thing to say. I'm going to upset somebody. I'm sorry. I feel like it's a very openly queer drawing room comedy. I don't think there's anything. Um, I think it's funny. I, I, I like it. And I, I've, I've been trying to find a home for that one. So, ta-da. And so, yeah, we just had a reading at the Harrington Center for that. I've actually had, that play has had a lot of readings. It, had, it did have one production at Mesa Community College. Um, but I'm like, that's one I would like to get out into the world because it was I I struggled with owning being a Filipino writer being a mixed race person um I struggle owning being funny I don't know why that's oh, a thing. You're so funny that's to be funny. like I can write comedy for the longest time I wouldn't let myself do that and and Jin Mummy is my attempt at writing a whole play that is funny on purpose it percolates it percolates in your pride and prejudice it's always it's always there yeah it's always there Prejudice. Yeah, so I, I'd like to write some more comedies, and um, I'm working on a comedy about nuns. 
and uh, there it is. <laughs> I like to write, so I just I think nuns are awesome. I think they're really cool. I think we tend to make fun of them, and I but I think it'd be fun to give them a show where they're making fun of themselves, which is not nonsense. I know. Yeah. No, it's not nonsense. Yeah. It's uh, I actually think the the women in the story are um, they're trying to survive. They're trying to make their lives work, and I think if we laugh at them it's really because of the situation we force them to be in mm. hmm. is that deep okay yeah, very That's deep great. i think uh Melissa, yes. first and lastly thank you for taking some time today i know you have lots of places you can spend your time uh i one of my biggest takeaways is that we should talk more often because you are funny and engaging and um writing so many interesting things in different genres and about different things i mean prolific can we use that word prolific yeah congratulations i'm not gonna say no (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much thanks very much for saying such nice things and for having me this has been really fun i mean i could i love theater i have become a theater person i could talk about the theater all day but we should not do that (laughs) well thank you for spending a few minutes and i wish you every success i'm really excited for you i'm excited to see um i want your project to go well too so thank you for that all the good vibes all the good vibes thank you